Welcome back to Project Odd Ocean, a story told in parts by yours truly, Joey Ammons. This is the second installment of the mysterious black envelope manuscripts that have been arriving to my address on a regular weekly basis. I've decided to share the story with you in the original format, oral tradition. But if this is your first time listening, I highly recommend returning to episode one, as from what I can tell, the story is best received chronologically. As I stated at the top, I'm sharing this podcast in its original format, from the days of your oral tradition. Of course, we all know from our fifth grade social studies class, by the way, do they still call it social studies? Oral tradition is the purest form of storytelling. I mean, for like tens of thousands of years, or maybe even hundreds of thousands of years, Homo sapiens couldn't write anything down. They didn't have pens or keyboards or Apple pencils. They just had pointy sticks, which they used to stab at their foes. Little did they know that they would use those same sticks to write down weird symbols that added up to complex concepts. And then those very foes they were stabbing with those pointy sticks, they ended up marrying and making babies with. Yep, they married Neanderthals, like right into the family. Which is why the old saying goes, if you can't beat them, breed with them. If you're familiar with some of the other podcasts I guest star on, You'll know I tend to get a lot of flack for being an audiobook listener. I'm just not going to stand for that anymore. Long live the original way of telling stories. Long live oral tradition. For we are the purest form of readers. For we are listeners. And we are not illiterate. We are highly literate. So literate, we have transcended beyond the tradition of holding a thing and looking at a string of symbols until they make meaning. Yes, for audiobook listeners, can listen to a story and wash the dishes at the same time. That's right, we can perform multitasking. And as for my comprehension, it is perfect. Wasn't Dune about Tatooine and an evil ginger man? Frank Herbert, what do you have against gingers? You have some posthumous explaining to do. Okay, I can see I drifted off topic again. So, what do we think of the story? From what I can tell, Charlotte's a polymath, and she's using dreams to solve math problems. And as my life partner, or rather life editor, puts it, Charlotte's a big ol' weirdo. And I can relate, but not in the math department. And while being a polymath doesn't necessarily make you good at math, this one is. I admit this story appeals to me because, while I wasn't so great at balancing equations, I was great at daydreaming. Actually, I was pretty good at balancing equations. But word problems, though, that was some BS. I always thought I was supposed to hear the question in a certain way. And whenever I got creative with it, the math teachers recommended I pursued geometry because it was visual. And then there's this engram that came from like a gremlin creature, a mysterious long string of numbers. What was like, was that buried down in like her subconscious or something? Let's see where that goes. And then there's this Zoe guy who just kind of let himself into her apartment and then started trying to fill her head with notions about promotions. And she doesn't even seem to want them. And by the way, what the hell is a listserv? I think it's like Fresh Direct, maybe. Cool, cool. Okay, D, you have some more writing to do, and we certainly have some more reading to do. Listeners, I have mentioned before that these chapters do appear to contain an array of traditional multi-ethnic queer and non-binary characters. And while I cannot speak for this D, I will do my best to portray these characters in their most honest light and without stereotype. Please let me know if I or D strays from a path of inclusiveness, because if they do, I will be blasting them all over this damn podcast like you wouldn't believe, and we'll make sure they hear it. My wid, what I'm drinking. 
I'm currently drinking the last few drops of Basil Hayden Christensen's whiskey bourbon, and I'm drinking out of Darth Vader's head, a glass decanter in the shape of old Vady's helmet. How apropos. Eileen, I'm looking at you, you Skywalker trash. Enough with the extended preamble. It is time for Chapter 2 of Odd Ocean. Charlotte was leaving the lobby of her apartment building. She opened the door, placed her hand on the door lever, and turned it. As the mechanism inside the door handle performed its function, it occurred to her just how similar the real world was to Loki's state. Loki's state was a mental construct of her own design, and it operated on rules. These rules were not difficult to fathom because Loki functioned on real-world physics. But Charlotte knew the mind had a tendency to skew towards the amorphous. Imagination has a strong bias for abstraction over concreteness. What had taken Charlotte years of practice and meditation was harnessing her imagination to embrace any sort of structure at all. But having basic physical principles such as gravity imposed on that loci state world had, in effect, rendered it with limitations. The limitations were, of course, the point. It created the framework to solving the logarithmic puzzles, or gordixes. She wondered about this as she descended down the steps to the subway. This always felt a bit like spelunking to her, which was a common occurrence in loci. Caves had a sort of symbolic significance and oftentimes turned into a backdoor for a problem she was not even fully aware of yet. Most of the Sarandite passages she had ever encountered manifested themselves in the forms of caves and cave passages. Charlotte reflected on the bits of hyper-stylized graffiti she saw on the walls, and how they were functionally the same as the earliest known cave paintings. They said, I was here, remember me. This is who I am and who I was. The mind also skews towards ego, Charlotte reflected. It needs to know itself. The mind's eye is immediately biased by virtue of the fact that it has to be a point of view. This limitation was also part of the loci state. She tried to fathom knowing something without this limitation of the ego, but the thought had led to an impossible conclusion. The subway careened into the stop like a giant tunneling worm. Charlotte and several dozen other commuters boarded. The train was mostly full with standing room only. Someone once tried to tell her that people came in only so many flavors. She could understand why someone would believe this on a superficial level. If you looked at a train car as if it were a small cross-section of the population, you could pick out some patterns, or even archetypes. She glanced over at the contents of the train car, counting all the individuals and breaking them up into various subsets and demographics in her head. Young creative professionals, designers, merchants, developers, architects, wearing semi-casual sweaters or sweater vests, shirts tucked into dark denim slacks, quirky tweed jackets, casual boots or sometimes designer sneakers paired with thick-framed glasses, it was common for men in this category who were going bald to shave their heads. It was more fashionable. Then there were the day laborers and the blue-collar types, construction workers, contractors, painters, carpenters, and handymen, wearing heavy, pale, mustard-colored steel-toe utility boots under baggy overalls, paint or gypsum-covered or smeared in grease. There were more than usual on this ride. They tended to be up early or out late. She was early today. The most common were her own brethren, the white-collar business casuals. Black and grays were a common theme. If the city had a predominant mood, this would be it. Wider gray tops and black and gray bottoms, and occasionally a jewel tone color. They wheeled designer handbags, umbrellas, sunglasses, coffee cups, and headphones. Then there were a few high rollers sprinkled in for good measure. The mid-level entrepreneurs, financiers, corporate consultants, and lawyers. 
all wearing dry clean suits apparently only available in four obnoxiously stylish varieties, pressed crisp button-down shirts with French cuffs, cuffs bejeweled with chromatic cufflinks on hands holding unscuffed briefcases and sockless Italian loafers. It always astonished her why they were on the train at all. Someone with French cuffs and tie pins should be able to afford a taxi, Charlotte reasoned. It was an unspoken rule that no one actually interacted with each other on the train, except for the occasional bright-eyed tourist. Having no understanding of this unspoken contract, they were nothing more than a temporary nuisance. She knew this was not fair, reducing people to superficial quotients. There was more to these people than just their appearance. Charlotte was clutching a metal pole only a meter or so away from a vagrant decorated in motley assemble of pink, woolly pieces of clothing. He wore magenta fuzzy mittens, a pink sweater over a light pink t-shirt, fuchsia-colored knit cap with matching earmuffs, dingy rose-colored sweatpants, and a pair of matted salmon slippers. He was making pronouncements in the entrancing cadence of a street preacher. His wrist full of several dozen sundry watches jangled when he shook his fist emphatically in the air to make a point. Charlotte observed him from the corner of her eye. It was good train etiquette to ignore unusual people unless they became violent but she could hear snickers coming from other riders reacting to his statements. Gray men lost. Three gray men lost. Shot in the dark. Wounded. We limped three days and three nights to the closest shelter. Tin can bangarang hut. That's when we knew. We were not wise. We were aliens. Hark! Do you hear that? He cupped a hand around his ear. Of course you do not. You cannot. You don't have the ears for it, because it is not a sound. The world. He paused for emphasis and stretched his arms out wide, invading the space of two riders on either side, both offended. The whole world is under a spell. Madmen and mystics. Madmen and mystics. He clapped his hands together loudly. A girl gasped, startled by the clap. One of the women sitting next to him frowned and left the seat to stand in a corner on the other side of the train. I release you from your enthrallment, he finished. Then the man in pink made eye contact with Charlotte. She looked away, but she could feel his gaze still on her. You, he said to her. I have seen you before, but here? Here? He extended a callous, dirty finger out to her. Charlotte looked over her shoulder in the other direction, trying to be invisible. It's not right, he shouted. His watches rattled. The train came to a stop at the next station. The man vaulted forward and away from Charlotte, tripping over another rider's leg and fell onto the floor just at Charlotte's feet. Terror filled his eyes, still trained on Charlotte. He scrambled away, spilling out onto the platform of the stop. His foot was caught in the gap between the train and the platform. The other riders that had been watching passively were concerned, but no one moved to help him. Charlotte put herself between the sliding doors so that the conductor would see the disturbance. But the distressed vagrant was only concerned about getting away from Charlotte, and scrambled to pull his foot out of the gap. He did, but he had to sacrifice his shoe to the tracks. He scrambled away from Charlotte, looking back only briefly before sprinting up the stairwell with a terrible echoing shriek. Ah! When Charlotte stepped back into the train, everyone was looking at her stunned, except for one of the suited men who was busy filling the man in the pink's vacant seat. Charlotte returned to her thoughts. Four zero eight six two six seven six dash seven three 
933464TR root. The data string presented itself to her again, like a song she could not get out of her head. 40862-2676. She had not given much more thought to why this was happening. Perhaps it was some sort of mnemonic device, an engram, she had used in the past to remember something, like a string tied around her finger. But once she developed the loci method, engrams became obsolete to her. So then what was its purpose, she wondered. A few stations later, the train arrived at her stop. She exited and took the escalator directly into the high-rise in which her office was located. She stopped by the coffee shop in the lobby, and the clerk she knew by face but not by name rang up the amount without even asking Charlotte for her order, as this was routine. Charlotte took a foamy sip of green tea chai latte before boarding the elevator to the company floor. She found herself imagining the other numbers from the mysterious engram around the floor number button until the doors opened at her floor, and she stepped through. The office was relatively quiet as her fellow employees filtered in to start the week. She made her way to her small cubicle. It was an open office plan and therefore did not allow for much privacy. She sat down and began checking her email when she felt something in her hair. How do you get it so light? said a voice behind her. Charlotte blankly stared at her neighboring co-worker, Darla, who was pawing at her hair. I mean, there's not a trace of color in here, she said, examining a handful of strands. Um... I was born without any melon in my hair, Charlotte said, suppressing the desire to pull her head away from the girl. Oh, shut up. That is so cool. Is that like an Asian thing? I've never heard of that before, Darla cocked her head. No, I I don't think so, Charlotte replied. People frequently made assumptions about Charlotte's ethnicity. She stopped bothering to correct them. Oh yeah, but I mean, the white goes great with your dark complexion. Darla pulled a lock of her own hair away from her head and glared at it at close range. See? Mine's like a mousy brown. Blah, so boring. She stuck her tongue out. Charlotte was unable to find the words. She could tell Darla was attempting to make small talk, but that sort of thing never came natural to her. In fact, she detested it. It's good hair, she blurted out. No, not as cool as yours. Me and some of the other girls thought maybe you'd bleached it. No, Charlotte replied. Darla squinted her eyes with a sideways grin and then chirped something inaudible. Finally, she clasped her coffee mug in both hands and said, Well, have a good day. Unable to suss out what happened with Darla, Charlotte began working on her report again, or tried to. She caught herself staring off into the code, only seeing pieces at a time. Last night's discovery had her off balance. The cat gremlin, the engram. It was irregular, and she had not unlocked the full Gordix. There would be no breakthroughs today. She called up the browser and searched the keyword, gremlin. She clicked on a general wiki page in the search results. A gremlin is a creature commonly depicted as mischievous and mechanically oriented, with a specific interest in aircraft. Gremlins' mischievous natures are similar to those of English folklore imps, while their inclination to damage or dismantle machinery is more modern. Charlotte was the one to prescribe the label gremlin to the creature, so there was some relevance to the idea. But what did the cat entity have to do with machinery? Was it damaging or dismantling the structures of the Gordixes? Was he somehow connected to the Sarandite passages and therefore aiding her? Sarandite passages led to answers or breakthroughs in puzzles, and it was not unheard of for her to encounter new entities, but ones that were somehow linked to information, without provenance or paper trail, that was unusual, and that bothered her. Entities like the Cat Gremlin were exceptionally rare, and she had only ever encountered a handful. 
Chiefly among them was her companion horse Quintilian, whom she was sure she must have met almost immediately after her first successful loci state engagement. Even though she could not pinpoint his origin, it was clear what his purpose was. He was a transporter, a challenger, and a skeptic. But most importantly, he was an advocate. Her thoughts were interrupted by a voice. Why, hello, Miss Green. A stout, bald man wearing an expensive navy blue business suit approached Charlotte's desk. He gripped the top of the divider with his right hand. It was small and thick, and his nails were well manicured. An aviator's watch with an overabundance of dials was fastened to his wrist so tightly that it cinched the flesh around it. And how are we doing today, hmm? Doing well. Nearly done with the Q-52 model. General trends point to an uptake of atmospheric carbon at a rate much higher than anticipated. She forced herself to say this with a smile and a levity in her voice, but she was certain it came off as rehearsed, disingenuous even. Hmm? That's great. That's great. You know, I came by to tell you personally that you've been invited on the GMIS Summit this year. You know what that is, right? The company annual think tank, she replied. Clever girl, he said, while allowing himself a leering scan of her body. Will you be looking forward to it? he asked. Oh, uh, I will have to make some preparations. Um, may I ask why I'm invited? Again, forcing pleasantness to her tone. Your wonderful mind, of course. We need your youthful viewpoint, he said, allowing himself a long gaze at part of her anatomy just below her face. Even though Charlotte's ability to read people was somewhat challenged, she could easily make out what he was thinking with that look. His collared shirt was unfastened to the third button, allowing for an obscene thicket of black curly hair to spill forth from his shirt. Hints of a gold chain glinted just barely through the coarse strands. So I'll see you ready to go in November. We'll more than likely have a car waiting. I'll have my assistant set it up on your calendar. Yes, Charlotte replied, trying to purge the image of his chest hair from her mind. Good, good, he clucked as he trotted off. Oh, and dress for warm weather, he winked suggestively. Charlotte sat there frozen in a fit of panic. A corporate trip with the department head? No thanks, not interested. Despite Mr. DeSchmuckenfuss's rancid reputation, she knew that there were dozens of other employees that would jump at the chance to rub elbows with the department VP. But Charlotte had no interest in this trip. She wondered if there was a way to dodge it, diplomatically. Charlotte took a large sip of her warm drink. She tried to resume her work, but found it difficult to concentrate. She resigned herself to debugging lines of code instead. Her concentration was interrupted just as soon as she was able to lose herself in the code. Everybody? Gather round? A quick announcement to make? Mr. DeSmuckenfuss was standing next to Zoe, who was significantly taller. Everybody, you all know Zoe here and the fine work he does? Dealing with our clients can be trying at times. There were some snickers in the cluster of employees. Barman Zoe does it with zeal. I was going to wait for our staff meeting, but frankly it can't wait. Zoe is going to be our next Cheshire reports manager. So, everyone... If you'd please join me in congratulating Zoe on his new position. Mr. DeSchmuckenfuss started clapping vigorously with his small, meaty hands, and the rest of the office joined in. Asher, a taller, trim, floppy-haired blonde man from the accounts team, cupped his hands around his mouth as he bellowed, Zoe! Woo! As if cheering on his favorite football team. Zoe threw up a peace sign and a cool head nod at Asher. The cluster of employees chuckled. Zoe shot an uncomfortable glance at Charlotte, mouthing the word, Sorry. 
Charlotte was already sitting back down in her chair, relieved. She had no interest in the position. As perhaps the youngest employee in the company's history, she would have made for an odd fit. The managerial role would mean regularly scheduled meetings with Mr. Deschmuckenfuss, as well as an aggravating emphasis on work-in-progress updates, touch bases, and an expectation that her personally crafted analytics and modeling tools could be taught to others like Darla. It was true that she herself rarely worked well in teams. Even to the other analytics engineers in her department, her code would be indecipherable. This mostly had to do with the use of a custom object-based programming language she aptly named LokiScript. LokiScript had been so intuitive to her that sometimes while she was waist-deep in code, the characters would melt away and she would visualize herself solving Gordix puzzles from the previous night's Loki venture. She wondered if the same parts of her brain were activating when she was in Loki state as when she was coding. It thought the same, but it did not feel the same. It lacked atmosphere and dimension, but more importantly, it lacked quintillion, she thought. Charlotte pulled the piece of paper with the engram on it and re-examined it. 40862676-73933464TR root. She typed the numbers into the browser search query, first without the dash. This returned no results. Then she called up another search, including the dash between the two numbers. The result was a math equation with a negative number. Had the difference of those two numbers been relevant, then that would have been the engram. No. The two numbers were essentially separate. Charlotte returned to the search query this time to include TR root. But before she could press enter, she was rudely interrupted by a pop-up ad. Without even acknowledging what the ad was about, she looked for the X to close out the window, but there was no X icon to be found. Just when she was about to close the entire browser window and investigate why her pop-up blocker failed, she saw that the ad featured a small impish monster that passingly resembled the cat, except for a few key differences. Such was the nature of coincidences. After all, it was easy for humans to observe coincidences in nature and divine some predetermined truth, something that pointed to the purpose and order rather than chaos. But Charlotte knew she could not be seduced by that sort of thinking. This was a coincidence within normal statistical parameters, she told herself. The low-res sprite hopped up and down, demanding attention and pointing at a small, cartoonish piece of ginseng in another quadrant of the graphic, and then vociferously gesturing to its own mouth. The text Feed Me appeared over the character. Against her better judgment, Charlotte clicked and dragged the root graphic to the gremlin's mouth. A new piece of ginseng root appeared, this time in a different quadrant. Intrigued that there did not appear to be any product being advertised, she entertained the graphic again. Every time she fed the character, it would grow in size. Curious what would happen when it got too large to fit in the pop-up window, Charlotte continued. Finally, a fat gremlin engorged with too many ginseng roots pushed beyond the boundaries of the pop-up window. The gremlin creature, now a free-ranging sprite on her desktop, walked along the search query of her browser until squatting and defecating a small brown mound on the map icon. Then it bounded out of frame and vanished. Charlotte clicked the remaining brown mound, which in turn presented a map search page. Perhaps it was the ginseng root or the quadrants, but Charlotte's mind was again triggered to recall the engram. She mauled over the two sets of eight digits. It was then that it occurred to her that the numbers were possibly coordinates. Of course they were, she thought. How could she have missed that? She hurriedly typed the numbers into the map search query. The coordinates revealed to her a location at the top of the city, sandwiched between two of the main rivers and somewhere inside Fort Hamilton Park. She plotted the distance from her current location in Midtown. It was nearly an hour away by public transit, too far for a lunch break. She marked the coordinates on the map for later and synced it with her phone. 
As Charlotte was quickly researching Fort Hamilton Park and what possible relevance it had to her, Zoe stopped by her desk. Hey, so I feel like I owe you an apology, he said, looking down through her. About what? she asked. He glanced away. Well, you know, the promotion. I must have misheard. I didn't expect that. Oh, it was a relief. I I didn't want that promotion. I I like what I'm doing. He looked at her incredulously. Really? But there's a significant pay boost, not to mention extra time off. No, I like what I do. I wouldn't know how to explain it to others, she said matter-of-factly. You will do well, and offered a plain smile. He scratched the back of his head, grinning. Oh, you think so? Thanks. I mean, I get along with almost everyone here. I know most of the analyst team on a first-name basis. Zoe continued on listing his qualifications, but Charlotte's mind was elsewhere. She wondered when next she would be able to venture out towards Fort Hamilton Park, and what could possibly be of interest there. She had always remembered numbers by using mnemonics, but that did not seem to be the case here. It was naked information, and that both intrigued and terrified her at the same time. So, I guess this means I'm your boss now, he chuckled awkwardly. Yes, she replied. Well, how about this? Since I was so wrong about the promotion, how about I get your lunch? Zoe asked. Actually, I was going to run some errands, she lied. Charlotte preferred a private lunch on a quiet park bench nestled inside of a courtyard with a playground that had fallen into disrepair. Being a creature of habit, she would take the same lunch with her every day. A turkey and Swiss sandwich on white bread, 12 almonds, a small Macintosh apple with a bottle of tap water. Eating usually took no more than 15 minutes. With the remaining 45 minutes allotted, she would spend engaging in loci state. Sometimes having been steeped in half a day's loci script code would allow for some useful insights. She had intended on doing this very thing today, with perhaps some side questing in regards to the silver nut, and not running actual errands. Charlotte's stomach growled. Errands? He said in disbelief. Come on, you're obviously hungry, he gestured at her noisy stomach. Where are you going for your errands? Oh, the park, she lied again. What park? What's there? Zoe asked. Not knowing what else to say, she said, Fort Hamilton Park. What's there? Um, I don't know. He squinted at her skeptically. I mean, I'm not sure yet, but I need to go there. All right. Well, then I'll go with you, he said. Charlotte was hesitant to include him in her private venture. She was not sure what she was going to find. She had never shared the existence of her skill with anyone out of fear that they would not understand and think she was mentally unwell. But it would at least be a good excuse to check out the coordinates. She did not actually have to share anything beyond that she wanted to go there. She could always make something up. Come on, he fussed after she had not said anything. Fine, she said, but it's almost an hour uptown. There and back would be much too long for a lunch break. If that's true, why were you going to head there? He asked. I was going to take a car, I guess. Oh, well that's cool. Technically I'm your boss now, right? So I'll say it's fine to go on one condition. No, two, I mean. Two conditions, he said. Charlotte cocked her head slightly waiting for his conditions. Okay. Condition one. 
you let me come with you. And two, you let me treat you to the best goddamn falafel sandwich you've ever had in your life. Falafel? Charlotte thought it over, but the falafel was not her main concern. All right, you have a deal. This did solve Charlotte's problem. She could investigate the engram coordinates as soon as possible. Moments later, they were outside. Damn, it's hot, Zoe said, fanning himself with his hand. Charlotte nodded. Probably shouldn't even be out here. Did you get the heat wave alert, he asked. Charlotte checked her watch. Nope, not today. Record heat levels, but we should be fine. All right, so my guy is just down the block here, Zoe mentioned. They navigated the lunch foot traffic until they arrived at a modest-looking halal cart. An older balding man with olive skin and a prominent nose boisterously greeted Zoe with a sideways hug and some language Charlotte didn't understand. The man glanced at Charlotte briefly, then grunted out something raunchy while affectionately jabbing his knuckles into Zoe's stomach, grinning like a scoundrel. Zoe responded by holding the back of his head and wincing at her apologetically. Then Zoe held up two fingers, and the man quickly prepared two falafel sandwiches. With bright eyes, the man dressed the sandwich with a fragrant earthy sauce and some other crushed spices before presenting it to Charlotte. The gesture was executed fluidly in an elevated sort of showmanship. He's added his secret touch, spiced truffle oil. Wouldn't expect that out of a street vendor, eh? Zoe held out some cash to him and the man profusely declined. He looked offended when Zoe insisted, and after some more lively back and forth, Zoe put his money away. As they were walking away, the man waved at Zoe and Charlotte one last time. Zoe waved back. Charlotte bit into the sandwich and she was taken aback. This is excellent, she said matter-of-factly. I know! Ahmed gets it right every time! How do you know him? Charlotte asked. Oh, well he's my uncle, he said, taking a large bite out of the sandwich. Didn't expect that either, huh? I think he really loves running that cart. He has several other guys working under him, but he insists on being the only one with his signature spiced truffle oil. Charlotte nodded with a mouthful of one of the best sandwiches she could recall eating. Guy sort of raised me, Zoe mentioned casually. Oh? Charlotte said through a large mouthful of the sandwich. Yeah, my dad just kind of bounced when I was still a baby, Zoe explained. Charlotte nodded again. Zoe sighed and looked around. Well, anyways, where's this park again? Charlotte was still busy chewing the last bite of sandwich when she pulled out her phone with the save map location. She showed it to Zoe. Oh yeah, that is far. He transferred the location to his own phone. Alright, I called a car, and we should be there in no time, Zoe said. While they waited, Zoe quickly scarfed down the rest of his own sandwich. Street foods are the best, eh? Charlotte nodded. My mother used to say that pumpkin pie tastes better when you eat it with your hands. Oh. Are you close with your mom? Zoe asked. Charlotte considered the question for a minute, not sure how to answer. She's not also... Is she still with us? Zoe said awkwardly. Yes, she replied. At that moment, a yellow cab pulled up to the curb to receive them. They stepped in and Zoe entered the location into the car's terminal. An automated voice confirmed and they were off. Headed for the park. Charlotte considered what waited for them at the coordinates. On one hand, she would be almost relieved if there was nothing there at all. On the other hand, she knew that the mystery of it would continue to eat away at her. You were saying? Zoe asked. I, I didn't say anything. No, earlier. You are about to say something about your mother, I think, Zoe said. Oh, I, I don't see my mother too much anymore, Charlotte explained. No? Why is that? Is she still... 
So Faroda's brow as he asked, Yes, she's alive, but it's complicated. Zoe pressed her. But your family, did something go wrong? Where is your father? Are you estranged? If so, why? Why would your father not be around? Charlotte shot back. Zoe placed his hands up defensively. Yeah, okay, I get it. I'm sorry. Charlotte was immediately embarrassed. The rest of the ride in the park was quiet. At one point, Zoe started to open his mouth to say something, but then closed it again. Charlotte sat there in silence as the car pulled up to the park, and the doors opened at the base of a very long and steep stairwell. Well, we're here, Zoe said, stretching, while Charlotte began climbing the stairs at a hurried pace. She stopped at the top of the stairwell and looked at the surroundings. (sighs) Are you going to tell me why we're here? Is this some sort of scavenger hunt? Zoe asked, out of breath from the long climb. Charlotte didn't answer. She was too preoccupied with aligning the location with the coordinates. Okay, so it's about another 30 yards north, northwest of here. When the curses aligned, Charlotte stopped and planted her feet. There was little unusual about the area. A large boulder a couple feet away, a tree with a gnarled root, and several patches of grass. They parted ways to inspect the area. As Charlotte was focused on the boulder, Zoe said, Hey, Charlotte, come take a look at this. Zoe stooped over a patch of bare dirt with a piece of exposed root that had scorch marks on it. Looks as though someone was burning something here, he deduced. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Charlotte looked around the area for something to dig. Off in the distance was a small tavern restaurant that looked like it was closed. Check out that restaurant see if there's maybe a shovel or something. Zoe without question made for the building. Charlotte continued to observe the area. The route was part of a network of other routes that had all converged one very dense knot. Why was this familiar to her, she wondered. T.R. Root. The roots had so much character to them, they almost formed a face. Yes, they did form a face. A walrusy, mustachioed man with small eyes, a large forehead, maybe, and glasses. Of course. The roots vaguely resembled Theodore Roosevelt, the country's esteemed 26th president. Just as Charlotte was musing over the irony of finding a president's likeness in a park named after another founding father, Zoe came trotting back with what appeared to be a small gardening hand spade. He handed it to Charlotte and said, Sorry, best I could find. Charlotte nodded without anticipation and plunged the spade into the ground. Hey, do you uh, think that's a good idea? Seems like we could get in trouble for this, Zoe asked nervously. Keep a lookout, Charlotte said while she continued to remove dirt from the area next to the roots. After a couple of minutes of vigorous digging, Charlotte, disappointed, stopped and looked at the newly dug hole. Nothing. Maybe it's deeper down, Zoe scratched the back of his head while staring at the pit. Maybe, Charlotte agreed. She discarded the gardening spade into the pile of dirt. Hey, wait, I think I see something, Zoe said, leaning over and sifting through the dirt where Charlotte had dropped the spade. It's an old Polaroid. Is that girl you? Give it to me, Charlotte said curtly. Without argument, Zoe handed Charlotte the photograph. Zoe was not mistaken. The photograph did indeed depict a young Charlotte of about 11 or 12. The picture was of a Halloween outing, but Charlotte did not recognize anyone in the photograph except for herself. She was wearing the ever-popular blue and white gingham dress and iconic red glitter shoes of Dorothy from Wizard of Oz but it had been torn and distressed, and was splashed with a bright red substance, perhaps fake blood. 
The dark and cartoonish makeup work on her face indicated that it was meant to be some sort of undead version of Dorothy. Charlotte was also holding a small Dalmatian puppy, small enough to fit in the cradle of her arms. She was standing with what appeared to be a family. She inferred as much from their themed costumes, members of a king's court. The child, who Charlotte decided was a boy, was wearing a knight's costume. His was the most elaborate, and, like her own costume, appeared to be customized with strong attention to detail. Charlotte had no memory of this costume, nor the people in the photograph. Growing up, Charlotte had not paid much mind to her own personal memories. They had taken a backseat to her studies, as well as the mnemonic techniques she used in her studies. Her memories had become yet even more elusive when these mnemonic techniques matured into the full loci technique. Because of this, Charlotte knew it was normal for her to experience a certain level of haziness for her personal memories. She was accustomed to that, but entire omissions of events and people would be something new altogether. The thought left Charlotte with unease. Who would put this here? Zoe asked. Charlotte was still focused on the photograph, and given the unorthodox way she discovered the coordinates, she figured it was against her better judgment to answer him. That's all you saw down there? Charlotte said, picking up the spade to sift through the pile of loosened dirt. Zoe nodded. Yep. Charlotte flipped the photograph over. There were two sets of writing, the first written in someone else's hand. Sir Aleph. This was followed by another newer piece of writing in her own handwriting. Return here in loci. Zoe had been reading over her shoulder. Loci? What is that? This is all very creepy. I don't know anyone in this photograph, Charlotte heard herself say. Zoe, very still, said, Whoa. I think we should head back, Charlotte said, securing the photo inside her wallet and then tote bag. Zoe shot glances over his shoulders, paranoid that they were being watched. Yeah, let's get out of here. Oh, hi there. You're still listening. We've gotten to know Charlotte and Zoe a little bit more. This office they work in kind of sucks, doesn't it? A gross-ass boss has the world's dumbest name, and he's lecherous and gross. This G-Miss Summit is a Me Too thing waiting to happen. Let's hope something dramatic and exciting prevents her from having to attend that damn thing. Okay, we also learned that the engram led to a photograph that had been partially burned and buried. Was this part of the missing memory? Also, he thinks there's something important about this Aleph. It's Billy Aleph. No, just Aleph. And they're all dressed up to go to a Ren Fair or some such. They might be able to drink mead. <laughs> Wait, no. Charlotte's also looking like a Wizard of Oz Dorothy-inspired zombie or something. Did she just not get the memo about the Ren Fair? Okay, D. You're up. Where's this all going? It's been a few days after receiving the second envelope, and I'm waiting. You want to keep this thing going? You know my Addy. As a visual artist, I burn through lots of audio content, and I'm constantly in search of a new series to consume, but it's hard to find good recs, which is why I'm including this section I call WILT, or W-I-L-T, what I'm listening to, which is a real WWA, or world's worst acronym. If you're a Robin Hobb fan, and you'd like to follow along with a group of friends on the Farseer saga, or you'd just like to hear me get yelled at for phonetically spelling every character in the books, check out Buckkeep Radio. Hans, anyone? Or is it Hans?
The Farseer books are a fantasy series about the world's most incompetent assassin, Fitz Chivalry, and how he falls in love with a white fool, a gray wolf, and a molly, a person who makes candles from beeswax, which is none of yours. I think that covers just about everything you need to know about these books to get excited. I was your host for this podcast, Joey Ammons. You can find me on Instagram at powerkid.exe, where I have been posting regular updates on the progress of my medicine man mustache. This is the end. Stay tuned for the flubbies. Charlotte and several dozen other commuters commuters. Finally she clasped her coffee cup 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 it up cup it up up it up up it's a mug. General Dren Drens. What's a Dren? You know I came by to tell you personally that you've been invited invited. Despite Mr. Deschmuck and Fuss's rants as perhaps the youngest employee in the company's history, she would have to make. She would have. She would have. She would. She would have. She would have. She would have. She would have. Custom object-based programming language. She was the nature. She was the nature. No, she was not. I wouldn't know how to explain it to other to others. Okay. To others. I wouldn't know how to explain it to others. Mister Carruthers. Charlotte was hesitant. This is a. She was not sure what was she push was so harsh. But then as well as the mnemonic